Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to Alexander Zevin, Assistant Professor of History at City University of New York, an editor of New Left Review and author of Liberalism at Large, The World According to the Economist. We tackle a host of interesting questions this week, including what is liberalism? Is it in crisis? And where next for the liberal rules-based world order? Thanks, as always, to our patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, support us at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. A big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Alexander Zevin to tell us what liberalism really is. Hello, Alexander Zevin, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you today? I'm very good from New York. Thank you for having me. Good. So... Today, we are going to talk a little bit about your book, and I'm going to open up by asking you just a small question. What is liberalism? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to begin by saying that my book sort of rejects some ideas about what liberalism is in order to get to a better definition, and maybe to start there because that's the, those are the ones that people will be familiar with. You know, what I'm responding to are these these uh, uh, ideas that liberalism either begins in the 17th century with John Locke and his political ideas uh, and theories, or with Adam Smith in the 18th century and the wealth of nations and stuff like that. What I am arguing in this book is that liberalism really emerges um, and has to be understood in its historical context in the period in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars, that's the moment in Europe, in Spain, and then in France, when people first describe themselves as liberal. And and we have to take that very seriously and to to, to sort of discuss what liberalism is by virtue of that self-description. And what we do when we begin at that moment is we see very clearly that it's a reaction to several developments, one of which is the sweeping away of the old regimes in Europe, so that a new form of of middle-class politics emerges that's against absolutism on the one hand, that wants responsible government, that wants elections, at least in some sense for some some people, wants constitutional rights and things like that, but on the other hand is afraid very quickly of the kinds of mass mobilizations of of the populace below. And that sort of in-between space is where, where liberalism gets started. It also, of course, is the moment when industrial capitalism actually kicks into high gear and so, so this is the, how I set liberalism up, right? It, it is these things that people think about when it comes to limited government and checks and balances and, 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 uh, and responsible government. But it is also this uh, phenomenon that can really only emerge at the turn of the 19th century as liberals confront these, these challenges um, like the, the demand for the vote from ordinary people and, and also the spread of, of capitalism and what, what, what that means for governance and, and and the economy and things like that. So from that perspective, something like the argument that neoliberals, for example, in the 1980s saw kind of democracy as a, an impediment to the introduction of the kinds of 
economic policies that they wanted to see. It's actually something that's been, you know, a, a tension that's been inherent within liberalism from its inception, which is this tension between democracy, democratic representation, and the interests of capital. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that one of the things that's gotten obscured during the Cold War and and today too is is the idea that liberal and democracy go together. That there's that there's these things called liberal democracies. We live in them, um, and that it's it's impossible for those two things to be separated. In fact, historically, liberals were not democrats, and they devised many different strategies for censitary suffrages to try and limit the vote to those with an education or to those who paid a certain amount of of income tax or property tax, all sorts of ingenious ways of of devising constitutional limits on the ability of the working class of the rabble, if you will, to vote. And so, yeah, the neoliberals, what's interesting, and I've been thinking a lot about this, is they take a kind of problem that liberals have been thinking about since the dawn of liberalism in a new context, right? You know, their the democracy is in some sense there to stay by the time the neoliberals come into into their own in the, the turn of the 1980s. But there are new ways and new means at their disposal for trying to deal with this problem of redistribution of demands for economic rights that may interfere with the free operation of the market and the uh, price mechanism that they think is fundamental to securing individual liberty and the and the good operation of capitalism. Now, another question um, given, and I realize uh, I uh, didn't mention the name of your book, but we will put a link to that in the description to this episode and also in the introduction, which is Liberalism at Large, The World According to the Economist. Now, why study liberalism from the perspective of one newspaper, The Economist, albeit, you know, a a highly respected kind of record of the interests of capital? Why study it from the perspective of The Economist specifically? Yeah, good, good question. I've asked myself that many times over the years. Um, (laughs) um, You know, I know more about The Economist than than many people who work at The Economist. Um, It's a strange uh, endeavor that I embarked upon. But I think that one of the reasons that I did it was um, to actually try and break apart the standard ways of talking about liberalism. So instead of looking at the canon, you know, Locke and uh, Mill and um, Rawls, you know, these these famous liberals, I thought that uh, it came came became clear to me that you know by looking at at a magazine, which is a collective endeavor, which comes out every week, which has actually been at the center of events, whose editors are anonymous, but who have served in prominent roles in the Treasury, in the Foreign Office, uh, as Prime Ministers, as a Bank of England governors, and, and, and so on and so forth, that you could tell a history of liberalism that accommodated the concept of change and transformation so that liberalism wasn't always the same thing because it kept responding to new challenges, new threats, new, new, new events, because, of course, The Economist has to respond to events every week for 175 plus years. So it was a way of trying to create a definition that was a lot more flexible and also that was more contextual. So I don't want your listeners to, you know, I feel like books about newspapers, there's something a little bit dreadful or boring about this this idea, like a biopic where, you know, the, the hero starts out, you know, rises and then gets addicted to drugs and like a musician like Johnny Cash or something. But actually, it's not a boring book, I don't think. It's surprisingly interesting uh, or fun, I, I would say that, I guess. But that is because it doesn't really try to make a biography of a of a newspaper in a standard way. It looks at it as a nexus for a kind of give and take, back and forth set of challenges, crises, debates that happen inside the paper, that happen with the paper and other thinkers. So in each chapter, 
you know, from the 1840s all the way to today, I always situate what's happening inside The Economist, its various positions vis-a-vis key thinkers on the left or right of liberalism. So in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, it's, it's a debate with John Stuart Mill. And in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, it's a debate with John Maynard Keynes. So it kind of, it, it does something I think a little bit unusual and more, more fun than it might appear vis-a-vis this history of, of a newspaper. I don't know if I sold that that well. Uh, you did, but, but yeah, yeah. No, you did. Worry. Well, I think so anyway. Who knows? <laughs> you know, not all socialists light up when they hear the name "The Economist," but you know, that's that's a mistake, I guess. Was what I'm I don't, I I have thought <laughs> since I received the early copy that it's incredibly important and an excellent way of looking at it. It's so interesting the way that you you know, study liberalism from the perspective of this one particular newspaper, because, you know, you're right, if you were to study liberalism, and indeed, you know, as I and many others did study liberalism in our kind of undergraduate politics courses, it will be Locke, Mill, and then, you know, you'll go up to rules and look at the development of this kind of canon of liberal thought. And yet, when you actually look at how it's applied, as is always the case with the application of any theory, the, it is so different and there are so mm. many more debates and it's so much more nuanced than just the ideological canon would suggest. And you play that out in the book. You, you look at that, those kind of tensions in the book in so many different ways, obviously over a very long period of time, using exceptionally interesting evidence from archives and from all different, loads and loads of different sources. And I was wondering if we could just kind of go through some of these examples of, I suppose, divides within liberalism and between the kind of mark off the practice of liberalism from the theory of liberalism. The first one, of course, being free trade, which is, you know, supposed to be in the the kind of mythology of liberalism, the thing that allowed it to emerge as its own separate kind of ideology that, that was the kind of the thing that liberal parties were championing several centuries ago. But actually, there were more kind of divides about how free trade would happen, particularly in the context of, of empire, than mm. you might ordinarily think. Yeah, the theory of free trade was a, was a, was supposedly a, a theory of peace and, and of goodwill, and of, of that if you exchanged more, you would uh, have more peaceful interactions. And, and there's an enlightenment idea here that it, that it's descended from that you know that trade polishes manners, that it brings uh, different kinds of people into intercourse with one another. Where they learn how to how to behave and, and how to and how to act uh, well with one another, that is the theory that Cobden and Bright, uh, uh, Richard Cobden, one of the heroes of the Anti Corn Law League, this famous body that emerges in the 1830s and 40s in England to fight against the Corn Laws, these these classically mercantilist laws that that keep grain prices up in England in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, and is viewed by the middle classes as a kind of as a as an, a vestige of aristocratic privilege of the landowning class. And along with that idea that if you abolish the, 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 the corn laws, you will see greater prosperity, you will see England exporting its, its finished products for the, for the grain and other goods uh, produced uh, uh, in other parts of the world, you have this idea that it will also do away with war. This idea that war is really also a kind of aristocratic warrior class vestige of an ancien regime mindset right, is very important to the theory of free trade. And James Wilson, who is the founder of The Economist, not very well known, but fascinating figure from a Scottish background, the son of a, of a textile manufacturer, promotes this idea as well. And what we see by the 1850s is this really radical split 
between James Wilson and Richard Cobden and John Bright, which just isn't really understood in the literature about free trade or The Economist. But it's really fundamental, I think, to getting at something about the dominant strain of liberalism as it emerges in the 1850s. And that is that for The Economist, it becomes quite clear that by the 1850s, in order for free trade to actually kind of obtain, to be, for it to become the ordering structure of the world economy as, as, as they had, had hoped, it's more than a matter of simply trading. You have to force people to trade freely, as it were. So there's a string of conflicts in the, in the 1850s, starting with the Crimean War, but then extending into China with the Opium War, um, and then also the Indian Uprising uh, Rebellion, that see the economists take not only positions within the paper that, that advocate the use of force in order to crack the cake of custom, this, this is one of Walter Badgett's phrase, in order to penetrate into the kind of what they see as an, as, as an Asiatic resistance to free trade, to progress, there's a moral and an economic dimension to that argument that this is going to require the use of the Royal Navy. It's going to require troops on the ground. It's going to require collaboration with other powers like France in order to open up this world economy. So, you know, you also see James Wilson denouncing Richard Cobden and John Bright in Parliament because he, by that point, is serving in the Treasury. He's creating government policy. He's taking out loans in order to fight these wars. So the imbrication of The Economist in this shift within Britain, within British politics, towards a much more liberal, imperialist, aggressive posture is, is one of the kind of, I would argue, like the discoveries of, of the book. Um, the thing that I kind of was most interested in in those early chapters is this, this really big break with that early theory of free trade. Our kind of another big break, um, as it were, or what's portrayed as a big break within liberalism was the birth of Keynesianism um, and you know, the kind of rise of support for more intervention domestically by the state and the birth of the Bretton Woods institutions internationally was presented as this kind of big transition that I suppose split liberalism and liberals between left and right and you know, the kind of decline of, uh, of real socialist movements over the last 40 years or so has left us with pretty much this axis defining left and right as to whether or not you think the state should be doing more or less. Mm. How much of a break was the birth of Keynesianism and Keynesian economic policy and what's often referred to in the, the UK as the post-war consensus? How much of a break really was that with what you might refer to as laissez-faire liberalism that came before? And how was it viewed by The Economist? You know, I set up a debate between Keynes and The Economist, and I think I have a line in there that what we get by looking at that debate is we see Keynes changing his own mind. We see him arguing with himself because mm. he embodies so many of the values of The Economist. He is a student with Alfred Marshall, the doyen of, of neoclassical economics in Britain, who really, more than anyone else, created the study of economics in, in modern Britain in, in a modern uh, so scientific sense. Uh, at Cambridge. He is a student with Walter Layton, who becomes the editor. He serves with Walter Layton in government during not only the First World War, but then also in the Second World War. So there's a there's a real personal dialogue between them. And, you know, I have also this sense that that famous line where Keynes in The Economic Consequences of the Peace talks about the pre-1914 world. He talks about basically himself lying in bed, reading about stock prices and knowing that the pound in his pocket is is because it's backed by gold is worth the same anywhere no passport needed to travel you know this famous phrase that's that, that's so evocative of 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 what this global edwardian globalized world was like before the first world war came and shattered it 
really is uh, Keynes reading The Economist in bed, because it's The Economist that is that window onto the world of high finance of, of globalized capital in the period before 1914. So I argue that, that in many, many ways, up to 1925 in particular, and then even after 1925, 1925 being the, the famous moment when Britain goes back on the gold standard at parity with the US dollar, basically imposing harsh deflationary austerity. Well, there's already been austerity for, for several years up to that point, but a kind of a deflationary pressure on an economy that's already really in the tank at that point. That even after 1925, when The Economist and Keynes start to do battle more and more, when Keynes starts to question many of the assumptions about free trade that he had had up to, to that point and begins to experiment with ideas about a, about a kind of flexible gold standard or flexible exchange, as well as idea about revenue tariffs and other things like that, that even after that point, in many, many ways, they share certain assumptions about, uh, in particular, the importance of the city of London to Britain's position as a global power in, in, in the world, and, and also you know, the idea of, of the pound as an important reserve currency. So the way that I, I narrate this is that is that yes, there are fundamental disagreements between the economists that, that are very sharp by the by the turn of the 1930s because Keynes does more and more begin to argue that something like deficit spending, something like creating a certain level of inflation is necessary. And the economists, although many editors of the Economist are students of Keynes by this point, they've joined the paper, they, they're, they're discussing Keynes' ideas, are very resistant to that notion in part because they're afraid about what the city of London is going to say about this idea that essentially investment decisions are going to be taken away from it. There are a lot there are a lot of moments of overlap. So I wanted to open up a set of questions, debates, arguments between Keynes and the city of London and and certain ideas about finance and Britain and the world. There's a I think potentially a wider question here as well about the link between economics as a discipline and the development of liberalism. Because there are many of the early liberals were obviously political economists, the big questions they were asking around trade, the national interest, um, kind of sovereign policies, I suppose. But from around the 60s, and obviously then, you know, you have the rise of Keynesianism. But then from the 60s and 70s, you also have the birth of neoclassicalomics, the Keynesian synthesis, which brings together some of that early political economy and, and thinking of the marginalists with some insights from Keynes and the rise of kind of microeconomics and mathematical modeling. And mm. that goes along with the transition towards neoliberalism. So these political trends seem to go hand in hand with some of the trends in economics. What, in your view, is the link? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think by virtue of the fact that I'm thinking about liberalism, right, rather than the neo-ordo and other variants that crop up you know, over these over these decades, as as the world economy changes and new ideas from the marginalists all the way up to sort of the emergence of neoliberalism and 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 beyond take place, that I see continuity where others see break and rupture. And and actually, there's a debate mm. that I've been really enjoying having with David Edgerton, um, who came out with a book called Rise and Fall of the British Nation, pretty recently, where we kind of I I think are, are having a productive exchange about. To what extent in 1945, just to take one example from the sequence of changes that you talked about, can we see a, a really fundamental shift in the political economy of Britain? And then to what extent in 1979, say, or whatever, is there another break? And, and certainly, certainly the election of the Labour government in 1945 and the sorts of changes they make to the, to the welfare state at that time, and then in contrast, when Thatcher comes in and does away with many of those reforms, certainly these are breaks. And that's, there's a reason that, that, that history is periodized in that way. 
But I see a great deal of continuity, uh, a great deal of kind of lineage, if you like, of liberalism within this, the lack of thought about what the city of London, what the control, what the private control of the investment function does to the British economy. Um, the, the ongoing importance of a certain conception of free trade within the Labour Party as well, and, you know, on both the right and the left of the Labour Party, which may be something we could talk about more, that I see these things as ongoing concerns and ongoing preoccupations. And sometimes new, new solutions, new accommodations come about because the labor movement is strong, because the Second World War shows that the state can play a more active role in the economy. And so Hayek's warnings um, in the road to serfdom look a bit exaggerated. But, um, you know, that it's difficult to explain how we get to 1979, how we get to Thatcher, unless we look at you know, she didn't come out of the blue and and she didn't sort of overturn a, a, a fully functional, non-crisis ridden, uh, non-contradictory form of social democracy. She exploited those contradictions. She exploited the disorientation within the Labour Party among social Democrats. Keep in mind, Callahan has already adopted the, the leader of the, the, the prime minister leader of the Labour Party in the late 70s, has already adopted a form of monetarism, has already accepted the IMF um, austerity loan. Right. So so that those shifts I see as taking place more gradually in part because liberalism never really goes away. And the form of liberalism that the economist espouses shifts and changes in, in all sorts of ways over the course of the 1840s all the way to, to the 1940s. But some elements of that story are in place you know, throughout, that, throughout those transitions within the study of economics. I'm going to put this question in provocatively simplistic terms, but I think that that point about continuity versus rupture is really interesting. Because I suppose you could come back and say, well, if you view liberalism as the ideology that is, you know, generally held by the capitalist ruling class, which is debating how this ideology should be interpreted and implemented in something like the pages of The Economist, then you can see a lot of the changes that take place in liberal ideology as responses to changes that are taking place objectively, material changes, changes to the relations of production that require innovation within this ideology to basically facilitate the ongoing ongoing capital accumulation. Now, that might be a bit too focusing on the economic base, but to what extent do you think that there's something in that which explains perhaps some of the continuity, but also the undeniable changes that we have seen in liberal ideology over the last 100 years? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's not so provocative to me. I, I, I think that, you know, as a crude materialist, um, a vulgar Marxist uh, or, or whatever, I do accept that idea. Uh, and I think that what we see is, you know, maybe a similar set of questions are being asked by liberals over the course of these two centuries. But the answers change based on circumstances, based mm. on historical context. So, you know, what to do about the the entry the forced forcible entry of the working class onto the scene of politics how to limit it is it by is it by restricting the suffrage is it by accepting universal suffrage but by limiting what parliaments can do is it a question of handing over control of interest rates and monetary policy to a central bank so that those sorts of questions that are so fundamental to a capital accumulation are are out out of the hands of legislatures right so the answers to those questions change based on what is possible in a given moment. But the questions are rather consistent in the history of liberalism. So maybe that's one way of, of answering your question and of, of thinking about that. Because, of course, I emphasize the way that liberalism changes. But, you know, the, one of the reasons that I don't 
maybe discuss as much as I could that that turning point in the 1980s of of, of the kind of entry of neo, you know, David Harvey describes the long march through the institutions of the neoliberals that, you know, they're biding their time in the 1920s and 30s. And then eventually by the 1980s, their moment has arrived. And in, in some sense, that story is undeniably true. But what's interesting to me is that economist journalists do not describe themselves as neoliberals. In fact, I was just looking through the archives of the paper and seeing that the term neoliberal really only gets applied as a term in quotation marks employed by kind of Latin American leftists to describe a set of policies that are applied in their countries in the aftermath of, of Chile, when it gets used at all. It's not viewed as a real descriptor of, of, a, of, a, of a political and economic worldview, let alone one that the economist would adopt. And this is despite the fact that by the end of the 1980s, the economist is rightly viewed as a kind of bastion of free market thinking, right? You know, Reagan and Thatcher are beatified within the pages of The Economist, and a version of globalization, à l'outrance, is championed there. And what that indicates to me, and you know, and the f- very fact that actually the term neoliberal really doesn't get, you know, you don't see it in the Financial Times or the Economist or or other financial newspapers. The IMF didn't seem to even really recognize that it existed until quite recently. One of the things that indicates to me is that this transition between liberalism and neoliberalism, from the point of view of those who are enacting it, is not always so clear cut. That many of the ways that neoliberalism gets implemented as a set of policies, whether that's in terms of austerity or deregulation or privatization, happens or comes about via people who consider themselves classical liberals or even even center-left liberals, right? And so that's that's sort of one of the things that's interesting to me that is key to understanding the way that that transition takes place. Today, given the kind of shift that we're seeing in economic common sense, I mean, whether you look at the reaction against um, austerity in some of the big international economic institutions or just the kind of more dirigist economic policies that are being implemented in response to the pandemic. And of course, all of this, again, is taking place in response to the changing needs of capital. Do you think that this is going to be reflected in another shift in liberal ideology and, you know, if so, to what extent will this be a new shift or just a kind of attempt to return to a more social democratic model, I suppose you could say, to kind of try and re-embed markets within a, a national context? And is that going to work, if so? You know, I think when Biden came in, let's just think, thinking about the, the US case, or but we could also think about, about Britain and several other countries that have, have opened up the taps, as it were, and uh, spending quite generously to buttress the economy during COVID to provide people with essentially uh, paid unemployment insurance extensions, uh, top-ups, uh, and all sorts of other other things uh, to businesses and so forth to keep the economy turning over. When Biden came in, there was a sense, I think at the outset, that that actually he was going to be more impressive in his scale of spending than, than, than many had imagined on the left. And certainly there was a, this one-off package extending the kinds of spending that, that Trump had already implemented, as well as some aid to states, so that some of the austerity that happened after 2008 um, on the state level um, may be avoided, because of course, states can't run deficits in the United States. And, 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 and many municipalities, such as the one that I live in, like New York City, were devastated by COVID in a kind of, in a, in a kind of unique way, since the economy here is so dependent on, on tourism, um, unfortunately. But now, as Biden starts to encounter real resistance to his agenda within the Democratic Party, as well as from Republicans to raising corporate tax rates to actually implementing an infrastructure plan in its in its sort of entirety, I think it's a bit it's a bit open to debate how much of a break we're going to see, even insofar as that means a return to something like a kind of just Keynesian 
sort of conception of priming the pump and so on. So in the absence of real resistance from organized labor, the, the, the failure to, to, to unionize that plant in, in, in Alabama by Amazon workers and so on is, 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 a, is a troubling sign, although maybe not a total catastrophe. I kind of wonder where the, without the kind of left challenge, I, I wonder how progressive a form this simply spending money on the part of the state and, and racking up deficits when interest rates are very low, to what extent that really can can bring about a lasting shift in our political economy. But I'd be curious, you know, I'm far from having a clear answer about that. Um, and things are changing very rapidly right now um, in response to a kind of totally unprecedented crisis. Um, Cedric Durand wrote very well about this for Sidecar the other day, asked some very interesting questions about what what this new moment we're living in is potentially mm. neoliberalism is no longer quite the right description, right? For what this mm. is, what is it? And and so I'm just kind of sharing some of my thoughts about skepticism about about the, the, the extent of that break, but I, I'd be actually quite curious what you think at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think what we were talking about earlier, that the, the points that you were making about the tension that's existed between democracy and liberalism from its inception are really important here, because I think we're seeing that Reemerge today. I mean, the traditional view on the left about as to why a capitalist state couldn't simply continuously increase its spending in the way that we have seen in some states during the pandemic would have been a kind of Kaletskian view, which was that it's going to empower workers and disrupt capital accumulation and tip the balance of power in favor of labor. It's a slightly different argument, I think, given the onslaught against the labor movement that we've had over the last 40 years, but also given just the massive role that was already played by the state within capital accumulation, which, you know, the the big lie of neoliberalism, which has been unpacked many, many times was, of course, that it had not, you know, it involved a shrinking of the state when, of course, it didn't. It just involved a reorientation of the state, a shift towards kind of setting the rules of the game, massive increases in regulation and particularly regulation of the finance sector, which was required to kind of underpin that big bubble that we saw. So it wasn't less state. It was a different kind of state. It was an erosion of the power of workers and a use of the state to boost the power of, of capital. But that was also associated with, of course, the state being more visible, being in so many more areas of life. And I think the challenge today isn't necessarily, right, well, if you spend more money, you have higher employment, which means you're tipping the balance of power in favor of labor. I think the challenge today is a state that is doing lots of stuff has to be able to justify why it is doing some stuff and not other stuff. And it has to be able to justify that to a population which, especially in the places where neoliberalism has has gone the furthest, uh, is increasingly insecure, precarious, low paid, dealing with appalling public services, and also potentially that, that whilst the people on the sharp end of, uh, of cuts to state spending are experiencing that. You're also seeing very overtly massive um, demonstrations of the power of capital with regards to the state. So, you know, whether that's them extracting tons of tax cuts or subsidies or whatever. So I think, you know, the challenge that we're seeing today and the tightrope that I think a lot of liberal politicians are walking today is between being able to meet the needs of capital and to use the state to meet meet the needs of capital, whilst also being able to say, right, well, we have to draw the line somewhere. We have to be able to kind of, you know, if we're democratic systems, we have to be able to say, right, there are certain things that you just can't ask for. You just can't mm. ask for us to reverse privatization or reverse the anti-union laws or take some of the things that you need to survive out of the market mechanism, provide more social housing. Mm. And I think that's going to be the interesting legitimation 
question that these liberals are going to be facing now. And I think for, for the left, the big thing is going to be about, well, how do we assert democracy? And our right to say, no, well, actually, we can ask for these things and we will ask for these things and we will campaign for these things and demand them. Mm. So I think it does come back to that question about the tension between democracy and liberalism again. Yeah, I think to build on that, like the question of politicization, it seems like there was a moment in COVID during the pandemic where certain questions arose about fairness and justice and who gets what in a very clear Mm -hmm. way. Right. And I think for the left, maybe extending that realm of politicization of certain certain questions around who does what work, what forms of compensation, how are they classified, who is essential, and also, yeah, the issue of, of how and who gets to decide those questions. Mm. Arguably an even bigger challenge for liberalism over the longer term than COVID is the rise of China. Um, and we're seeing at the moment Biden attempt at the G7 meetings to construct this anti-China axis you know, arguably a lot of the, the giveaways that he's been providing in terms of, uh, you know, agreeing finally that he needs to work with Europe to clamp down on tax avoidance, predominantly by US tech giants, are all about giving stuff away to encourage European countries to be much more assertive about resisting the rise of China. Mm. What are the implications going to be for, you know, what some call the liberal rules-based world order. Clearly, this was not a crisis that began and ended with Trump. It's something much more structural. So how are liberals going to react and respond? Well, it seems pretty clear to me, based on, on Biden's playbook that he's deployed so far during the campaign and in office, that, that um, and based on some incredible, those, I don't know if you've seen the, this, this, this incredible interview that uh, Hillary Clinton gave, where she she talked about the rise of China and, um, and and the means of production is quite a remarkable moment. Mm. But clearly, the 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 way that Trump deployed America first and the rhetoric of a new Cold War with China, it was already there under Obama. The pivot to Asia and so forth It's not a new idea among the ruling class of the United States. But um, Trump deployed it very very effectively as as a as a rhetorical tool, as a mobilizing tool. Biden's adopted it, and you know a number of the kind of the stimulus measures are 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 couched in the language of of sort of needing to compete with China, so onshoring semi semiconductor production, or like preventing that that technology from being appropriated by Chinese manufacturers, uh, guarding intellectual property, right? Uh, needing a labor force that is able to be retrained and to be able to be able to be competitive in higher value industries. All these things, all these things are a certain language about about industry in the United States and and its decline and reviving it are all coded in in a kind of anti Chinese rhetoric that seems to be a playbook. Really now, you know, like a like literally distributed to the to the to the, to the leaders of the of the Democrats in the Senate and Congress and in the White House. So, I see that as something that seems to be uh, here to stay, and I, I I don't see it as a positive development. Unlike some on the left who I think think it's a clever way of getting these progressive priorities within within various pieces of legislation, I, I see it as actually quite characteristic of the way that liberalism can and does employ. You know, it's not necessarily liberalism has not necessarily historically been a kind of rootless cosmopolitan doctrine. It's quite often employed nationalism in certain ways to 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 get uh, to get stuff done or, or to 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 attain power. And to think about the British cases, there there are numerous the the kind of liberal imperialists who were a faction of the Liberal Party at the turn of the uh, the turn of the twentieth century emphasize this idea of, of efficiency in the aftermath of the Second Boer War at the turn of the twentieth century. The working class who went and fought in that war were 
were malnourished, they were too short. They, there was all sorts of complaints about the kind of the racial stock of the British people. And, and it led to a number of kind of elements of progressive legislation to make sure that there were health checks at schools, that uh, that, that there was uh, uh, food or milk distributed, that, you know, the, the, the practice of overlaying, uh, thing, all these things, all these bits of social legislation, of education legislation emerged after that moment. So that that's just a kind of example to talk about the way that 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 the idea of efficiency, the idea the idea of empire, can be a spur within liberalism towards more progressive social legislation at home. So this playbook that I see with the rise of China, it's a sort of indirect way of answering that maybe, but seems quite consistent with. On the one hand, you get social reform, and on the other hand, you get you get ramped up imperial tensions, and and the t- two far from being easily separated, often go hand in hand in the history of, of liberalism. There's just simply no reason to accept this hypocritical idea on the part of the West, which is the more powerful party, which I think is always another important thing to consider in these questions about foreign policy is who is the more powerful party, right? You know, and 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 who mm-hmm. has more to gain from this kind of moralism around uh, around the idea of democracy and human rights, and 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 it, of course it's since since Carter at the at the at the latest, it is the United States, and so. You know, there's. I think if we were more specific, we could get into sort of how that's used in a variety of contexts. How it's used with Iran, which is totally encircled yeah. by U.S. military bases, as well as North Korea, as well as China, as well as Cuba. You know, Cuba has now created mm. two vaccines based on a kind of biotechnology sector that is one of the strongest in the world, with an embargo against it, 90 miles off the coast of Florida, mm-hmm. where they can't get the syringes and the you know the the, the technical equipment they need. It's a crime, you know, mm-hmm. and it has nothing to do with the moral qualities of that regime. And so for me, the, the question of foreign policy, the question of, of, of liberal imperialism is really, really fundamental to really understanding the whole orientation of the left. And one of the things about Corbyn that was so refreshing is that he really, in this respect, represented a, a break from a labor party that historically has always been quite nationalistic in its outlook, has not been internationalist. And, and of course, that was one of the things that I think was most anathema and one of the reasons that you know the labor right sort of pulled out all the stops in its in its desire to kind of undo him final question why is there no economist of the left and can we make one (laughs) (laughs) it's funny i think that the the left it's the in reading the economist and 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 the archives of the economist and and you know it's quite clear that the left has always been very interested in the Economist. From Marx, uh, reading the Economist mm. at the at the British Library in the 1840s and 50s to try and understand why the revolutions of 1848 had fizzled out, and in, in, in his view, in part because of the improving economic conditions, which he kind of confirmed by reading the prices and quotations and and and, and indices in the Economist, to uh, uh, to someone like Isaac Deutscher. Um, the great biographer of Trotsky and the historian of the Russian Revolution, actually writing for The Economist and being a kind of correspondent for it during the Second World War about what was happening in Eastern Europe and Russia. The left has always been fascinated by The Economist. So I see myself as part of a tradition that looks at The Economist as this kind of tribune of, 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 a, of a liberal ruling class, of a financial aristocracy. That's what Marx called it, the tribune of the aristocracy of finance to understand the political orientation of these leaders and of these of these markets and sort of how they change and shift so it's not an, i mean so the so the question is the economist serves a particular function for 
a global ruling class. It, it's always had an international orientation and it's always been sent abroad to the capital, to Buenos Aires, to, to Paris and, and to all sorts of cities around the world that were interested in trade and, and capital investment, foreign investment. But I think sort of structurally the left, which is oppositional, which is non-hegemonic, which is attempting to undo or to create a new political modality, it could not have emerged out of the left, which, you know, organically, because it cannot simply hold a mirror up to capital the way that the economist does. But but I think that it is perhaps a goal of the left to be as comprehensive and totalizing as the economist is in covering the entire world, in thinking about the ways that domestic and foreign policy politics are, are always connected, and in being quite savvy and clear about the ways that you know, the emergence of a new political movement on the left in somewhere like Mexico or Brazil is going to challenge not only the national capitalists, but also international capital. So, you know, I don't, I don't have an answer as to why the left doesn't quite have the economists, but it's, it seems sort of structural to me to the ways that the, that the, um, the, the insurgent left and the dominant ruling class kind of work, but that, that in reading The Economist, the left actually has found a kind of tool to understand capital in a clear-eyed way. You know, David Singer once said, as a left-wing journalist who worked for The Economist, a trot actually, said, you know, um, in The Economist, you can hear the ruling class speaking to itself, and it can speak quite plainly. And so maybe the question is not exactly why the left doesn't have an economist, but how the left, by reading The Economist and taking it seriously or taking its, its worldview seriously, can empower itself and can gain a certain purchase on this on this world that they want to overturn. I think that's a very good answer. And of course, if you want analysis that is on a par, if not superior to that, which you will find in The Economist, you can, of course, find it in Tribune and Jacobin magazines. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Alex, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. It was great to have you uh, on the show. And the New Left Review, too. <laughs> and the New Left yeah, Review, just, of course. <laughs> as long as we're talking about publications, of course. Yeah, it was great to be here, Grace. Thank you for, for talking to me. 